Good morning, Sarah Hefla. Good morning, number one, Nancy, a.k.a. Nancy Rommelman. That's right. Hey, we might as well just start it right now. What's the name of this podcast, Sarah Hefla? Smoke them if you got them. It is. And we, we're going to have a confession here. We're doing a little redo today, aren't we? This This is, in fact, our second take. Yeah. And uh, uh, we basically were deciding that we are going to give each other, you know, basically make it a rule that like once every fortnight or so, you get to redo the entire day. You had a day that wasn't so great. Fine. It's, you're just redoing it, scrapping it, whatever. So um, uh, yesterday was Sarah's. So my Yesterday little- does not exist for me. I just, I was like in such a depressive funk and everything I did yesterday just had a, a smear of mediocrity about it. Smear of mediocrity. It sounds like a new product or something. It's <laughs> not what I want to buy. I'm taking that back to the store and I'm buying <laughs> oil of glittery <laughs> exceptionalism. <laughs> I think that's at CVS, right? There's a there's an aisle for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I actually had a pretty good day yesterday. I, I got to stop say, bragging. Oh no, uh, no, too bad. I'm bragging. Um, so I live in Chinatown, as some people know, kind of like east section of Chinatown by uh, Allen Street, and it is so insanely popping over here. I have a friend in from San Francisco. We went out last night and she's like, what, what the hell is going on here? There are, I'm, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. There are thousands of people in the street, just thousands, like every bar, everything. Oh, this is sounds like my nightmare. Why is this good? Well, no, but you know, but in a way that's like, okay, so like they close off sections of canal. Um, they've got like, uh, whatever, like barricades and like, like skater kids or like skateboarding in the street and the streets are like, there's cafes. And it's been this way since I, well, Obviously, during the pandemic, it was not that popping. But as soon as things started opening up, it's just crazy because it's a young part of the city. Everybody's just out. Everybody wants to eat and drink. Everybody looks amazing. And we are still, uh, as I talked about on a podcast with Matt Welch last year, we are still in the summer of no bras. All the bra manufacturers have gone out of business. So just in case that's interesting to anybody. I got to avoid this. I got to yeah. avoid this show. <laughs> however, this is not going to work out well for me. However, we did something did happen yesterday, which I, it makes me a little sad to report, but I'm going to report it because here we are. Um, so uh, literally one block from me on the corner of Allen and uh, Canal, the, I moved in December 2019. They were jackhammering every morning for two and a half years. Well, okay, why, whatever. It's this big building. Well, it turns out it was a hotel. It's a new kind of posh hotel. This area is not posh, okay? It's mm-hmm. like, it's happening. You got high, you got low, you got pop-ups, you got galleries, you got, but it's not fancy, but it's cool, right? You live in a super cool area. I do. I'm, yeah, I, I, I would not, yeah, I didn't realize how cool that area of Chinatown was before so I visited you. So, went out with my friend last night. We went out to dinner, a place we, I usually go to lunch over there on uh, on Eldridge called Dudley's. We had dinner, and it's like, let's get a drink on the way home. And I was like, oh, let's check out this new place. It's got like this cool hotel bar, and it's got this, it just looks really cool. So, we walk in, and there's places at the bar, and they're like, no, I'm, no, I'm sorry, um, we have to like reserve these for people that might want to come in and eat at the bar. Okay. That's, I mean, uh, kind of ridiculous, but it's legit. They want to do that. That's fine. And it was pretty pop and it was about quarter to 10. She's like, but go in the lobby. There's like, you know, there's a bar there. We're like, okay. So we walk over and there's a woman we're about to walk. She's like, oh no, hold on. It's hi. Hi. Sorry. What? Sorry. I was like, oh, we just want to sit and have a bar. She's like, well, hold now, hold on a second. Hold on, hold on. She's like, disappears. She comes back. Well, I can put you on a waiting list to maybe get a seat at the bar in 30 minutes. And I was like, yeah, nah, no. And also I was like, I don't like that. I don't like that now this has come to the neighborhood. I hope it's not 
inevitable. And I'm sure there are people that are going to say to me, you know, Nancy, it was really cooler here five years ago before you got here. But in any case, that was not for me. So we went to one of our favorite little, little uh, places called Bacala around the corner. There's this grotto bar uh, in the, in the basement of it. You should, you should definitely check it out. They're super nice there. Um, But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking part of the neighborhood might've jumped the shark and that, that doesn't make me happy. So. Well, I wouldn't know what's going on outside the, the, the door of my house because I I barely left it yesterday. I just, I, I fell into this depressive funk. I don't want to go out. I don't want to leave. I don't want to engage. I just, I was like, oh, so I'm turning this around. So what did you do instead? Did you read a lot? Well, I was working and then I watched Yellowstone. Oh, I still haven't watched that. You know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, there's a there's a whole storyline about the Indian reservation that is trying to to win back its land from this main landowner. And there's there one of the you know, it's basically about this family called the Duttons. They're like super powerful family that founded Bozeman. I don't know if they really I don't think they did. I think this is all fictional. But anyway, one of the kids is married to a woman who lives on the reservation. So he's left his very posh, you know, cattleman's lifestyle and moved in on the reservation. So there's a lot of stuff about the reservation. It, it's, life is hard on the reservation there well, in that so, show. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's, it's taking place in the, in the 1800s. When is it taking Oh, no, place? no, no, no. This is modern. Yellowstone oh. is contemporary. Okay. 1883 is the is the prequel that I watched that was taking place on the Oregon Trail. So, of course, there's tons of reservations up in Montana. It's a huge native population over there. And and there are some, I mean, I haven't been to all of them. I've been to some. I spent three much, months on the Blackfeet, Blackfoot Reservation back in uh, 1987. And I've driven around there. I mean, there are some reservations that are, are you know, things are kind of rough and some that are, are not. I mean, it really depends on the tribe. It depends on... The makeup of the tribe, it depends on whether they've got like oil rights that they're getting paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, every, every, every place is different. And then there's also like where my daughter's people are from in Oklahoma. They're from Okmulgee area and they're, it's not a reservation. It's just a place where there happen to be like lots of natives and also like lots of blacks and whites. They all just sort of like live, you know, it's a small town. Um, but speaking of that, uh, a friend of mine, Ben Price, uh, tapped me and Matt Welch in a tweet said, I'm watching this show rumble on, uh, HBO and I'm, it's really bringing up some interesting things. I'm enjoying it, something like that. And I couldn't find. I thought I could find this like Disney wrestling animated thing. Like what is what is he right. talking about? Well, no, it's a documentary about Native Americans in rock and roll. And I just watched. Oh. I just watched the trailer, and I, I I'm going to put a link here, man, because I got all uh, goosebumpy and tearful at the same time. And they you were got talking all about, shook up. I got all shook up. Um, they were talking about this one song called R- Rumble, which I, you know it, but I, I, I don't know more about it. But you, when you hear the the, the, okay. the baseline, you'll know it. But um, I got because I know people, um, people that are talking about it, the people they're talking about. It was just, it's just fascinating, and it is just so, so, so incredible. As I've said, you know, ad nauseum here, if you listen to it, having been around Native people in the film industry since the mid-1980s and watching them for so, so long try to push that rock up the hill and just say, mm-hmm. hey, number one, can we just play like a dentist or a cop and not right. have to be like the beleaguered or super noble 
you know, savage or whatever. Yes. So that's happened. We are seeing that. We're seeing that with Reservation Dogs, which my daughter has worked on and is going to be working on the next season's coming up. But we are also now seeing like other parts of the arts saying, oh yeah, and check this out. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get all overcome right now. It's just, it's just amazing. It's an amazing time. And, and one thing that people should also know, like Native Americans are here. They're not, they don't live in history. Okay. They live here and they're probably living right in your neighborhood, but they don't necessarily, like you don't, ID them as Indians because guess what? They don't wear like headdresses. Okay. Right. My daughter, people like don't, they, they, they know she's something. They're like, they're like, are you Brazilian or are you Mexican? Like they don't, they don't see it, but other natives see it right away. And I see it because I, you, you just got to be around native people. Anyway, that's my, um, my happy native feelings this morning. Um, and I will, we will put a link to that, um, to that show, uh, in the show notes. Let's get ready to rumble. Let's get ready to rumble. Good morning, Sarah Hepla. So I um I texted you this morning, and we're going to talk about a bunch of things. But I texted you yeah. this morning and said I would really like to talk about forgiveness. Um, it's That's something that has been uh, on my mind um, since some really you know creepy and crappy stuff happened to my life and my husband's life, and I started writing about it and I started um, looking at how people react to stories and why and the tribes we form and and the way we want to get rid of people and um we've seen a lot of this recently. We talked about the New York magazine canceled at seventeen story, and the the reactions that brought out are are just incredible. I mean, they fall along the lines that you think, and um Jesse single, who uh, is a, just a really great great journalist and he's also a friend and he does blocked and reported with Curdy hate Curdy hate Katie Herzog. also a friend I'm sure many of you listen to that podcast um he had a piece this morning on his Substack, which is you know as he put it at the end he's like this what I'm writing right here is not like stuff you've never heard but it's a kind of a summation we need to remember and I I really thought it was good and it really it really stirred up for me some ideas I've been kicking around which are the two are um the punishment generation that we seem to be living through people really 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 getting off on punishing other people. And also, uh, as I've, I've talked about before, the gloss of good intentions. When you feel that you're doing the right thing because it's um, because it looks good or it feels good for you, but what is it actually doing? So um, I, I sent that to you, and then we started talking about some other stories. So how do we want to dive in here, do you think? Well, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, uh, the idea of forgiveness is, is so interesting because... Um, I think it it in a in a pretty succinct way gets at what I have felt so disjointed about over the last few years um that I I grew up with this idea that being a liberal meant you know empathizing with the other side sympathizing with the other side uh, it was the right that felt like they lacked forgiveness and they were all about judgment. And and at some point this pivoted and I think it's been very uncomfortable for me. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I get I get slammed for is for sympathizing with people that have done, quote unquote, misdeeds. And I, I just I, I continue to think that's that's part of my like moral framework. <laughs> um, I, I also think a lot about judgment, you know, the idea that like you'll hear a lot in conversations like, oh, I don't judge. I'm not judging. 
no judgment, no judgment. And then you go on the internet and it's like all judgment all the time. Right. Because, <laughs> because what does it mean to say like, I don't, if you go on the internet and, you, and then something is crappy is happening, if you try to say, you know, like, well, let's look at it another way. There's no, there's not a big audience for that. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't generate, and I'm not even talking about like clicks or hate or, or um, it's just, there's, there's no real position for that. That's going to gain traction. I, I think a lot about, um, I think a lot about forgiveness that the way, so first of all, if you see something bad, somebody's in the barrel, something's happening to someone, it's sort of instinctive that you feel, I mean, for me, and I know for you too, and for many people I know, it's sort of instinctive that you were like, oh my God, I want to reach out to that person. I want to make sure that they feel that they're not alone. If you, you know, if, if, if what they've done does not seem like so horrible to you, or even if it does seem kind of horrible to you, you want to sort of understand that people make mistakes. And I think just like anything, like if you, if you are uh, a soccer player or if you want to be a baker, like you get better at it, the more you do it. Right. And if you, if it becomes very instinctual for you to feel uh, empathy for someone that's in a bad situation, you build up that muscle and it becomes normal and it becomes your world. Just like you said, it's sort of like your, your worldview. And I think the opposite happens that when you, when you are looking for, you know, those enemies or the bad people and are ready to, ready to performatively show how unforgiving you are, then that you build up that muscle. And that muscle to me is a frightening muscle, right? It's a frightening reaction when people become extremely comfortable and extremely good at explaining why those people over there are the bad people and we need to make sure they never come back that's that's very disturbing to me and i think that's i think that's where we are i mean i think that's very definitely what we saw in the reaction to um to the uh, canceled at 17 piece we saw people saying he, it is unforgivable you should not ever have had one shred of anything for him because he's the bad person. The end. That was my impression, at least. The piece that really resonated with me was the one that you sent me by Freddie DeBoer. Yes, which I reread this morning. Yes. Now, I only have like a passing awareness of Freddie DeBoer, um, meaning that I've heard him on podcasts and I'm aware that <clears throat> he had his own kind of scandal. Do you yes. Yes. I don't, I don't recall all the details, but I, in very, very broad strokes, he basically, I think he made up something about someone okay. knowingly. Like you and I could say something and like as a journalist and accidentally and correct it or apologize or whatever. He did it deliberately. And in terms of hurting someone else, I'm sorry, I don't remember. And, and in a way, I don't want to like spread whatever happened. People can look it up if they're interested. Um, he was also, I guess at the time, having like serious mental health crisis. Like, That's that had what been I remember. Known, had yeah. been known for a long time. And he um, was definitely pushed out onto the ice, ice flow. He wrote a book and he's sort of come back. He, he, I don't think he's on Twitter. I think he might be um, banned from Twitter. I'm not sure about that. But I find him to be actually. People have mixed feelings about Deboer. I I happen to like his writing. Um, I think he's a very good writer. He's a good thinker. I, I can't say whether I always agree with him because I don't I don't read him that much. But I thought that this piece, which was in what was it, it was on carceral. What was it called? Carceral liberalism. Cultural liberalism. <laughs> I thought there were some very very uh, good 
lines in there. I might want to read one quote here, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. I, I, I highlighted it, but now I don't remember exactly what it was. Well, I have a couple. I mean, when, while you're looking for that, let me just okay, say that, you know, I, I don't read him enough to know how much I agree with him. What I can tell you is that I have a friend that sends me a substack quite a bit, and I'm really impressed by his writing. And I'm very impressed with his ability to collapse complex ideas into like hard hitting phrases. I mean, here he talks about the progressive id, which I mean, it's it's just a throwaway line here. But, I, you know, the, the progressive id on Twitter. And I just thought, like, God, that is what it is. You know, there is just this id run amok um, that is is so he also talks about Internet leftism, which, again, it's, it's a throwaway line, but it's just like an efficient way to talk about a certain kind of um, of ideology that that we end up. I end up sort of like, you know, Twitter activism or whatever, but internet leftism sort of works very well. Um, I have a line that I highlighted, but you have one too. Do you want to tell us yours? Sure. The first, I mean, I, I have a couple, but this was one toward the end. And he said, I can't help but feel that the rancor against the kid in the New York art, New York magazine article and those who attempt to think compassionately about him is ultimately mostly an expression, not of the inherent injustice of what he did, but of the endlessly metastasized rage liberals feel about not being able to make real change. Well, guess what? That's the line I had highlighted as well. <laughs> Shocking, right? And, and you know, we need a little bit of a context for that. He was basically saying, you know, the, the, there's a lot of these sort of progressive ideals and they try to push toward them and they don't actually happen because maybe the majority of people don't really want them to happen or don't really agree. And that just sort of creates creates like more rage. It's like, oh, well, we're now we're even madder and we're going to we're going to, you know, double down and triple down on it. I found that so interesting and it made me think about the 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 fact that like through the 80s and 90s and aughts there was this real sense that the, the left had won the culture war. I mean, if you looked oh, at sure. movies and music and popular culture and you know there was there was this idea that like I remember being in like in the 90s, kind of like if you're a young person, like who on earth would be a conservative, you know, because. But that's it, where you were. I mean, I'm sure there were places in the country where that people were <laughs> young people were conservative. Right. No, I mean, I'm sure they were. But I was <clears throat> excuse me. I was still in Texas, you know, and, yeah, true, true. And, the, and the people that I saw that were conservative were mostly like it was on religious grounds, you know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so. But, you know, one of the things we realize is that during those decades, the the conservative movement was making moves by ins installing justices and different, you know, th they were really winning the legal fight. So they were working within the lines is what you're saying, as opposed to just sort of like ideological, like we think this is the way it should be. And yeah, we right. feel so strong because look, you know, all the all the movie studios agree with us. All the magazines it's agree with us. All the celebrities are on our side. Right. And that that's that's very, very true. I mean, you had the you, this is this, and this is absolutely true. And more, you know, right wing or conservative groups saying like like Hollywood is basically in the pocket, you know, the, with the damned. And, that, and that's true. I remember a silly, well, I guess it wasn't silly to Donald Trump, but when he was, you know, who wanted to play at his inauguration? 
Like what kind of band? Oh, yeah, like, exactly. Have, like, you, did you have like, you know, all <clears throat> these famous people lining up? No, because people just weren't the, the big, big name celebrities weren't that down with him. So, um, okay. But, but now you fast forward and, and with something like overturning Roe v. Wade, you see that this has been a decades long march to try to undo <clears throat> this, you know, what many of us understood to be a constitutional right. And there is a rage and a frustration that the Democrats have not done more. Well, yeah. Don't you hear a lot of that, too? It's like, well, OK, so why don't you get out and vote? You know, you can't just like you can't just like yell about things. It's sort of like um, uh, the gals that 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 said, OK, we're going to there was a big where was that article? Oh, oh, Kat Rosenfield's piece. Um, there were where was it? That was gal. People are going to give up sex. We're not going to have, uh, you know, heterosexual intercourse until the laws are overturned. Until oh, Roe that's v. a piece in Insider. It's not yeah. Kat's piece. Okay. But yeah. And it was like when I told when I told my daughter that my young adult daughter, she's like, wow, everybody loses. Um, you know, it's like that's not the way change actually happens. I don't know. I know that you feel, we t- you know, this is like the modern day Lysistrata, right? We're going to like deny people sex and then the world is going to change. We're going to get what we want. Well, actually, that that's not the way laws change. You know, just if you're super loud about things and that maybe that's what DeBoer is saying. Like, yes, the left definitely has, you know, it has uh, the media in many cases and it has Hollywood in many cases. And you can talk about a lot of things and you can want for these things. But is that actually the way you make political change? It's not. So um, I want to read one more thing that uh, one more highlight that I read about his in, in DeBoer's piece. And he said, is it fair to question whether contemporary progressives have a healthy attitude toward crime and punishment? Based on this story and others like it, I would say yes. This is uh, talking about the, um, the, um, the New York Magazine piece. The people who exaggeratedly roll their eyes at another cancel culture story would say no. But I have to go on s- insisting that it's very strange to think that someone who murders a convenience store employee in a botched robbery deserves another shot at life because we're, you know, we're talking about more like restorative justice, like we don't want people in prison. Uh, uh, A convenience store employee in a botched robbery deserves another shot at life, but someone who, say, was put on a list for having creepy vibes should have that fact scuttle his chances at getting a job for years into the future. Sorry, I kind of botched that quote, but he was comparing, you know, people on the shitty media men list and these anonymous, you know, accusations that they had. Like, they should never be allowed to come back, ever. But if you believe in 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 restorative justice and not putting people in prison uh, when they get out, you want to give we see this all the time. You want to give them another chance. Frankly, I think they all deserve another chance. Okay, we that is what forgiveness is. You can't be a forgiving person for like one segment of society because it matches your idea of who deserves justice. But this other thing that doesn't match your idea of what deserves justice. No, we don't forgive there. I don't think you can do that. And I don't think either side on on the extremes gets that right. Yeah, I mean, the piece is uh, identifying a, a central contradiction in, in some of this ideology, which is the idea that there is uh, a kind of excess or an attempt, a, a greater attempt at understanding for some marginalized communities and especially around drug laws and things like that. And then there is such a retraction to understand amongst other populations. So yes. uh, interestingly, that is the 
other quote that I had pulled out. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting to think about the the mindset that that basically is saying like like we should not be putting people in prisons, but they have to burn for these mistakes that they've made. Right. Right. The Especially kid who, when it comes to sort of like sexual assault stuff. Yes, I know. I, I think I know which line you're going to you're going to say, but go for it, because I'm looking at what no, I that, the other line oh. I had was the one you just read. OK, so I'll just have that. And, and I'm sorry, I should I, I kind of I kind of messed up there trying to give you the quote. So he's yes, is Freddie DeBoer starts out talking about this New York Magazine article canceled at 17. But he also gives a, some really interesting statistics about who's locked up in the United States and how progressives definitely do not want people in prison because there's always the example of like a first time drug offender. And I completely agree with this. I think this is idiotic. However, he does note that, you know, a lot of people locked in up in prisons are locked up there for violent crimes, domestic abuse assault. You know, these are things that are like not really popular. And his line said, this is very telling. There is no path to dismantling the prison industrial complex that does not let out a lot of people guilty of identity crimes like sexual assault, hate crimes, and domestic violence, which are things like really that that, that people that want to like exiled this 17-year-old boy forever, he would, you know, that's what they're accusing him of. But they're okay with letting people out of prison that are, that are, you know, guilty of this. Um, I mean, you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to either be, you know, just a dick about the whole thing and say, no, nobody gets forgiveness right. for anything. Or you have to say, okay, look, we got to look at these cases one at a time and understand where we stand on the forgiveness uh, scale. And I just, I, I, it breaks my heart, frankly. And I know that we will be castigated for this to say that a 17 year old that does something stupid, really, really fucking stupid can never be forgiven. Why do you think there's such a lack of forgiveness? I think that people are afraid to forgive sometimes. I think that they, um, it might make them feel weak. It might make them feel unpopular. It might make them feel better to be part of whatever crowd that is yelling for someone's head because there's safety in the crowd, right? There's, there's safety when you're part of a thousand people, you know, screaming off with her head, um, or part of a thousand people, you know, on your knees praying for someone. Forget it, it's you don't have to take responsibility for that. To be the one person that stands up, or that that owns your idea of forgiving someone, is maybe hard. You know, maybe you're gonna you're gonna lose friends. I'll, I'm, I'm not gonna. I definitely am not gonna hijack this um, story. Um, with my own stuff, but I remember when all this stuff happened in Portland, um, and there were like, my husband had had like 125 employees over the years, and we didn't hear from any of them. And some of them we'd been very close to, you know, we'd taken care of in various ways, but whatever, um, except for two who reached out. And then one other one that said, you know, she was reaching out her hand to be supportive, but please don't, please don't say anything publicly about her being supportive, supportive of us privately, because she was afraid. She was afraid that the people that were being loud and angry would then turn on her. And they absolutely would have. They absolutely would have. And so people maybe forgive in their hearts or don't really feel bad um, or don't really feel mad, but they don't want to admit it. I think that um, 
my own personal philosophy is probably to lean maybe a little too hard on forgiveness. Like I think I go too quickly to it. At least that's what I've been told by friends um, who observe me with men that I've dated. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I have a friend that calls me like the biggest benefit of the doubt giving motherfucker that she knows. And I think it's because my primary like I'm just only interested in understanding. I'm almost never interested in punishing. I don't know what it is about me. I don't know if I'm missing some gene well, punishment puts a period on something. What's it? What like once you punish someone and exile them, the story's over, right? Like what? Did, what? What fun is that? I mean, I wrote I wrote an entire book because I didn't believe that like the 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 edicts passed down on her, which was either she's crazy or she's evil, and that's it, and we don't want to hear anything more about her. I was like, no, that doesn't that doesn't answer any questions here about like human nature. I mean, of course we're curious about forgiveness because we're curious about the world. This is what we do, right? It's what we do for a living. And to just like make pass judgments on everybody, we'd have we'd have no career. I mean, we we literally wouldn't, Sarah. We what would we do? Oh, okay. Sorry, your 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 falafel sucks. We're not gonna. We're at the end. It's like we have to we have to be curious about why people do things and and what happens afterwards. I mean, if we're gonna go back to this kid, I mean, that this that, that, okay. Let me ask you a question. So, when you read that story, and I realize we've already podcast about this, and and we'll put a link to that episode. Um, did do you? Can you explain to me, riddle me this, Sarah Heppola, why you think the reactions to what he did, for instance, from like a Jessica Valenti, who wrote an entire piece that Freddie DeBoer linked to, I hadn't seen it before because I don't, I don't follow her or read her, um, was so categorically sure of who was the bad guy and who was the good guy. And there, there, was, there was no shades. It was only black or white, only a villain, only a hero. She would not, I mean, I, I personally saw some of the, um, the people doing the accusing in that they, they got caught up in this, like, almost like Salem witch trial kind of, um, hysteria and euphoria that, you know, what was happening. Um, why do you think, how does it benefit, uh, let's say the Jessica Valentes of the world to only see things in black and white? Well, because I think Jessica Valenti is an activist above all else, and activism sort of demands it 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 shirks nuance and it it reaches for certainty and <clears throat> so it doesn't behoove her to think in those terms, but I think underneath that, there must be a sense that throughout so much of human history, women got have have been abused and taken advantage of and demoralized in so many ways um that that, that were not people didn't have outrage at that and and now there's this bristling sense that people have outrage about a guy that that got the short end of the stick i think it might gall her in some way I don't know. Um, I think, I, I do think women have gotten taken advantage of and, and, and abused and I, in, 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 in like so many, I don't, I guess what I want to say though is I, I'm unconvinced that I think 
legal punishment should be where that gets meted out, you know? You mean for for the for the boy? Or for- Yeah, I mean if if in things like, you know, showing a picture of your of your girlfriend it's like an asshole move. And I'm not sure I think it should be a criminal move. And I, and I, I think that she points out that it is a a crime and there's all sorts of like laws around child porn and shit. And we're trying to like uh, stem this tide of, of, of kids sharing these photos. But, but to me, the trespass is the moral trespass that he betrayed someone's trust. What he loses is, and should be, the relationship with the woman that he cared about. And that's the punishment. And then I don't, I, I don't understand all this punishment coming from other, why are other people involved in this? Because it became, <clears throat> it became a movement and, you know, you had a scared, you had a scared um, faculty that didn't know how to handle this boy. Did they not know how to handle this? I mean, it was, I mean, they all wound up quitting basically because it became, it was just a fire raging. Yeah. But, but what you said was interesting. So there is no such thing in, let's just use her as an example in Valenti's world for a mistake. There's no room for mistakes at all. And what he did was a mistake. It wasn't a crime. I mean, you could, he was 17, she was 17, whatever. I mean, look, if you think you're going to get kids not to share naked pictures of themselves on their cell phones, you're, you're high. It's not, and, and I am definitely not forgiving what he did. It was fucking idiotic and stupid. And you know what? She broke up with him and yeah, did she, I'm not saying she should have, she chose to, that's fine. She's well within her rights to say, you're a dick. I, I hate that you did this, but yes, why is it now, what has been accomplished, which sort of circles back to what Deborah was saying. It's like, okay, what has been accomplished now? If you want to make change in society, the change in society that shows me that you've made is, okay, everyone, you watch what you do. Because if you make any kind of mistake that we deem against our, you know, out of the framework of what we think is allowable, we will destroy you. We will publicly destroy you. So you keep that in mind. Now, okay, so you maybe they would say, well, yeah, Nancy, that's a good deterrent. We have now stopped people from doing this thing that this boy did. Well, maybe, I don't know. Let's see, because right at this very second, people are sending around photos, naked photos of the people that they're they're with, <clears throat> they're sleeping with. So, so what have you actually accomplished. What you've accomplished is to to drop more and more little drops of fear into the communal well. And I would say it's a it's a it's a poisonous thing. I would not have adjudicated this at all. And I certainly am not a Jessica Valenti. I I would say we need to do better. And that boy deserves something. I'm not sure what he deserves in terms of recompense or, or making it up. But I don't see just, I don't see considering anything you don't like that drops into the unforgivable category, and now we're going to make these categories. I don't see this as making a better world or a world that that anybody is really going to want to live in, and maybe not even them. Because as I've said before, like five billion times, if you spend your time, if what you do is you spend your time sharpening knives you are the knife sharpener. And if you and your crew sharpen knives, that's what you do. You get super good at it, just like getting good at soccer or getting good at baker. You get really, really good at sharpening knives. You're going to want to use those knives. And eventually those knives will come for you. 
that's that's the world I see that we're making. We're making a world that is increasingly unforgiving. And obviously the internet with a, with a big assist from the internet. And um, it's not a world, actually, I don't live in that world because I don't, I don't, I don't play that way. And I do my best to, um, to, to not contribute to, um, to stories like that. <clears throat> well, we've seen a, a shift away from a society that used to handle youthful sexuality with a couple of different, you tried to keep that in line with a couple ways. You know, one of them was a, you're going to hell right. and B, which I mean, I don't agree with, but it's like a really good way to keep people's like, like behavior in check. It, and it's, when you, you lose that, you lose a lot. <laughs> How many documentaries have we watched and talked about where people were like, I was afraid I was going to go to hell. I know. It's like it's it's yeah it's big, it's big you, and then and then if everyone you know sort of has this awareness, so wait a minute, there isn't maybe any hell. I can just get away with this. I can just do this. Mm -hmm. Then how are you going to control behavior? <clears throat> One of the ways that it was handled for a while was through like a social stigma. Women had the burden of that. You know, you don't want to be one of those girls, loose girls. You don't want to be a loose girl. And a lot of this was, uh, like. Like if if somebody in a in a relationship stepped out of line, it was going to often be the woman the woman who took the the reputational hit. You know, mm -hmm. it was really mm -hmm. unfair. Um, and the legal system. Let's just let's be absolutely oh, honest, yeah. it was completely against her. I mean, everything was against her. She was encouraged not to say anything. You know, you're going to ruin this guy's life if you say something. And what you know, how short was your skirt? I mean, it was absolutely gross in a lot of things. I think we have made some real strides there. And I wonder, Sarah, how? It, sorry, I'm not to derail you, but ha these strides have been made. These strides well, have been made, and not just through shaming. I don't think. I think it's so important to point out that whatever <clears throat> our culture has become or whatever a sort of justice-seeking uh, internet leftism has become, it began with really important corrections to a legal system that was stacked against women mm -hmm. in really awful ways. Mm -hmm. um, and what I think happened was that a legal correction that was necessary became became something more like gospel truth so mm -hmm. that you could never ask a woman how much she drank. You could never discuss a woman's behavior, all of which falls under a sort of, I don't know, it, what a woman does doesn't matter, which doesn't make any sense. It's like the opposite of empowering. It's like things just happen to you and you have no role in them. No agency. No agency. Um, so I, I, you know, was thinking about how more like in the last few years, we've tried to like like rein in some of this behavior around youthful sexuality with um, with consent laws and and things like Title IX tribunals. And this brings me to uh, Biden's. Uh, new campus codes that he's rolled out. This is something that, uh, you know, I don't know how much <clears throat> our audience has been paying attention to the Title IX thing. It's been a little bit wild. Um, you know, one of the things that Betsy DeVos did, Betsy DeVos was Secretary of Education under Donald Trump. I want to be clear, I was in no way a Trump supporter. But one of the things that many uh, 
liberals and especially legal liberals supported was the changes that she introduced to the Title IX system, which had become this kind of kangaroo court of, you know, boys getting pushed out of college before they'd ever really gotten a fair hearing. Uh, there's a lot of Kafka-esque stories around the ways that these things were handled, where sometimes you didn't even hear what you'd been accused of. There's a great book uh, by Laura Kipnis, a feminist author called Unwanted Advances. This is something that uh, describes her own kind of harrowing walk through the maze of Title IX. She's a professor at Northwestern, I believe. Uh, she had written a story about supporting, you know, kind of being in favor of professors dating former students. It had long been a tradition at different academies, and it was the, the tide was changing on this. And she sort of had an old-fashioned... Uh, she she liked this. <laughs> She's a salty lady. Um, a, a student filed a Title IX claim against her for making the classroom unsafe. So one of the things that Betsy DeVos did was to kind of pull back on the way that Title IX had gotten a little bit out of control. And what we're seeing now is that Biden is going to introduce new codes that are going to return us to an earlier system. Some of the changes involve there's no cross-examination. So let's just back up for one, just a little Absolutely. bit of context and give an example. And there are many stories. We're going to mm. link to some of Emily Yaffe's on, work on this because she's probably done the best work in the country on this uh, issue. Uh, let's say I'm John and Sarah is Sarah and we go out one night and we fool around. And then somehow Sarah decides that this was not consensual. It can be after the fact. And maybe maybe we didn't even really fool around that much. She can report it to a Title IX officer. Mm -hmm. An investigation is opened on me, John, but I am not told who made the accusation, I believe, and I am not told what the accusations are. And I'm also not allowed to have any sort of cross-examination of Sarah because she's anonymous. And if I try to fight back, those things will go on my record is trying to fight back and will usually boomerang against me. And often in these cases, what happens is that the boy has to leave school. Um, and, and let's just say it usually is a female accuser and a male accused. Um, right. What's happened, and you had some numbers <clears throat> on this when we talked yesterday, is that there have been many, many lawsuits that have been pressed by the accused that, who were not really allowed, not allowed to defend themselves, weren't even allowed to know exactly what they were being charged with. Um, and they've won these suits, and including against the schools. Um, mm -hmm. In one of the articles, we'll, we'll link by Yaffe, he, they, he, he sued and, and won because these, it was not being carried out. You know, we, we're still going to make that, uh, that uh, smoke them swag, the, the hot for due process shirts because <laughs> you have to have it. Am I, am, am I right in, in saying that, that, that Title IX and, um, and due process are at odds with each other? A Title IX, as it was being practiced uh, during the Obama years, and uh, yeah, I, I think it absolutely is. And there's been a lot of lawsuits that have come up because of that. This Emily Yaffe piece that you mentioned talks about 675 suits have been filed in federal and state courts, and judges have issued hundreds of rulings deploring the 
the kangaroo courts that the male subjects are subjected to. And we should clarify that, you know, what you were describing, the dynamic that you were describing, it's not true in every case at every university. One of the things that happened was under the Obama administration, there wasn't a ton of guidelines. So people were kind of best guessing their way through this thing because they didn't want to lose federal funding. Uh, they were sort of in a panic to add these, you know, tribunals and and quote unquote take sexual assault seriously, which you know was open to interpretation. What does that mean exactly? Um, but anyway, one U.S. District Court wrote judge wrote that an accused student's treatment was closer to Salem 1692 than Boston 2015. So that that era spawned this whole industry of Title IX officials and investigators and lawyers and consultants. Um, you know, this piece points out that Harvard has more than 50 Title IX coordinators, which and is just a huge number of people. Like it's a it's a bit of a bureaucratic bloat that are here to handle sexual engagement between young people. And, you know, I've read a lot of stories. I know I got a lot of pushback on this when I was writing about it. I mean, look, I because I had a book that was coming out about drinking and sex and blackout drinking in 2015, which was in many ways like <clears throat> the hot moment in culture around this issue, I ended up talking about it a lot and I ended up researching it a lot. I wrote a piece on Texas Monthly called The Alcohol Blackout that was talking about the failure at a lot of these universities to really talk about alcohol use, which was one of the the, the major components to the, the, the environment that had been created. I mean, there have been several stories that have pointed out that a lot of these cases are just coming out of hookup culture and they're coming out of confusion around what is consent, how much, uh, how much alcohol is too much alcohol uh, in, in terms of what makes valid consent. And, and when I would read the college codes at these universities, they would all be really different. And some of them were really wild and extreme. I mean, one of them would say like one beer constitutes a lack of consent. I mean, this is, this is, this is terrible because it basically reframes all of, not all of, but most of college sex as being non-consensual. It's just not realistic at all. It had such an air of like conservative Puritanism to me. But anyway, it was coming from the progressive left. Um, you know, one of one of the points that, that Yaffe makes in this story is that one frustrated Title IX coordinator told her that she thought of her job as running the breakup office. So, but then there's also the other side. If you've got 50 Title IX officers in Harvard, they have to, and, and I'm, I'm not saying their hearts aren't in the right place. I'm assuming some are and some aren't. Um, they have to justify their jobs. And these are not, these are not like, you know, $30,000 a year jobs is my impression. You know, they have to justify their reason for being there, which means it would seem to me you would open the door wider and wider to make, uh, you know, different and smaller complaints you could you know either amplify or embroider them or do whatever in order to continue to have this um this stream of title nine cases which biden has now just reified right so it's going to be it's going to make their jobs easier i don't know if it makes it morally easier because i would i would become extremely queasy um if i were being told i needed to file a case against a student based on the fact that they're having a messy breakup 
Some of the specific changes are, as we've discussed, no cross-examination. There's a broader definition of unwanted advances Uh, under the DeVos system. It was very specific that the advances had to be sort of uh, multiple and, and specifically endanger your advancement in your profession. Um, and also the ins- the single investigator model is back. And, and this is the idea that one person behind closed doors is going to be investigating this stuff. It's a sort of judge, jury, executioner model, um, which I think it's a lot suffering. of people. And, you know, I, this this whole thing, I, I just the bureaucratic bloat of it, the, the sort of like to, to like when I, when I would go. <laughs> Uh, when I would go talk to students, uh, they would ask me these questions like, well, how many beers is, is consent? You know, like, is it two beers? Is it four beers? And of course, like, according to the law, it had to do with like all these secondary, like, are you slurring? Uh, you can't, you can't pin it down to, to a number of beers, but it all felt to me like so beside the point. It's like, can we have a discussion about whether or not you should be having sex with someone you don't know? <laughs> Whether Mom, do, do you know her name? Do you know her name? Do you know her middle name? Do you do you want like like there is this? We're going to talk about abortion in a minute, and I am really not. I am not happy that Roe v. Wade was overturned, and I think it's a really problematic time. But one of the things that I see happening through a lot of this is that it it returns us to an idea that sex actually has weight and value and consequences and maybe it's not something that's casual and that doesn't mean it needs to be committed in other words you don't have to be in the context of a marriage you don't even have to be in the context of an exclusive relationship but maybe it's not something that should just be so it maybe it's a time to think more about the moral weight and what it is that we do when we are that intimate with somebody else. Well, that's, I mean, first of all, this is completely fascinating. And I wish, you know, someone had sat me down when I was 14 and explained that. Um, The thing about it is that, you know, your hormones start going into flip and overdrive when you're whatever it is, 13. And you don't have anybody telling you this unless you are, like you said before, you're living within a sort of... um, stricture that tells you like you're you're going to help what's funny you know what i thought of the other day remember what were they called the the promise rings um that oh yeah abstinence rings right and that was a big deal in texas right and so that was when high school kids or however young people would like wear these these rings that would say like i pledge to not like have sex until i'm married of course of course the rumors were that it led to like every other i'm not gonna have intercourse until i'm married it led to like every other kind of sexual so much anal sex right but like but no that that vagina that nothing's been in there um so but what i found kind of interesting was like that was the provenance of definitely of the right and the Christian right back in, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. And now who are the people saying they're not going to have sex? It's 
the left. We are not going to have sex. It's just so funny how this thing gets gets swapped around and how, what a hot potato sex is. But in any case, what you're saying, we've we've said before on this on this podcast, like at, at some point in our lives, maybe when we were you know 15 or when we were 45, you know, you understood that sex could be sacred. And of course, sex could be a lot of things. I mean, it's a lot of things to a lot of people, and there's porn, and that's fine. People can do whatever the bleeding want they want with sex. However, and to your point that people could say to themselves, like, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, you can do it like when you want, and it can be this other really sort of, um, important thing. And I'm not saying this to like say, oh, girls protect your, your maidenhood. No, no. I'm just saying like it, it, I guess you've you've studied the kind of hookup culture a lot more than I have. And something we talked about yesterday in the in the lost episode was that people are having less sex, right? Isn't yeah. that isn't that true? So but they're but they're not I don't think they're having less sex because they're thinking it more of like, well, I want it to be maybe a little more meaningful <clears throat> or a little wholer. They're not having sex for other reasons. Anyway, I'm, I'm sort of taking this Well, one of the things that I noticed in talking to younger women was that they seemed like a very interesting thing happened when you pulled away the social stigma, uh, which is that for the longest time, a really great excuse for not going farther with a guy was, I don't, I, I can't be one of those girls. I, d- I don't want that reputation. You know, how dare you, sir? And huh. when you pull away that social stigma, there's not a really good excuse. I mean, I don't know if you, like the best excuse ever is like, I have a boyfriend, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I have a boyfriend, can't do this. But if you're trying to date somebody and they want to go farther than you want to, it's, difficult for women who are socialized, especially around not hurting someone's feelings. Like you hear a lot around from young women, like, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I wish we would push back on that. You're not going to hurt their feelings. You're not going to hurt their feelings. It's okay to say no. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw this. uh, We talked about the, the um, story cat person in the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was just, a lot of women that I think were saying yes to sex because they didn't really know how else to get out of it. And it wasn't coercive. It was just uncomfortable. You know, I hear this, I've been hearing this like for 30 years, you know, I, I, I think in my entire, like, actually a couple times in my life, I've kind of like, ugh, didn't really want to do it and kind of did it. But literally it was like people I, you know, it wasn't so much that I felt bad. It was just like, ugh, you want to kind of like get this over with. I wonder, do you think this, I know for a fact, right? We've talked about this before, that guys also find themselves in this situation. Like they find themselves with a girl who like wants to have sex. Oh, sure. They don't really, they don't really want to, but they're going to do it like literally just to get it over with and be polite. I, I'm sure it kind of leans a little more the other way that, you know, guys are um, uh, doing it. But in terms of like, you know, you don't really have to do anything you don't want to do. I mean, for most of us, we're not in a rela- we're not in a situation where we are going to be forced. And I'm not talking about a horribly dangerous situation where, like, you're you know entrapped or and something awful happens and you're assaulted. But like, why is it so hard to just say I don't want to do this? Like, I mean, is that really so hard for people? Like, is it is it okay? Here's what I'm really asking: Who who keeps 
saying like, well, women don't know how to say no. They just want to be nice. I know fucking a million women who are not nice. I mean, they're not nice at all. They, why, why, where is this, 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 do we have to keep believing that women only ever want to be nice? I, I don't necessarily believe that's true. I, I, I'm going to push back on that. You would. Yeah, I mean. Because you're not nice. Well, I guess that's it. You know, I see. No, that's not it. I mean, look, I I appreciate the pushback and I think you're right. I mean, there is this certain like, like what women are these shrinking violets that can't say no. But I do actually think that women are socialized to be accommodating. I know that for me, I had an uh, an overdeveloped concern about other people's feelings. Uh, I've dealt with this all my life. I I have that too. Yeah, I, I think this is actually really common for women. And I don't actually think that most men have it. And, and I'm sorry to be such a gender, gender essentialist about this, but, uh, I do think that is, is working out here. And I also think, you know, I'm reading this book by a Washington post writer named Christine Emba. She's about uh, 10 years younger than me, maybe more than that. Uh, she wrote a book called rethinking sex and, you know, I'm still reading it. So I'm, I'm still processing it. But one of the things you get, through her dispatches with a generation that's about, uh, you know, grew up around a lot of, um, you know, Kim Kardashian sex tapes and Girls Gone Wild and sex positivity and stuff is a real ingrained sense that, oh, there's nothing wrong with liking sex for no reason. Like, uh, you know, I I don't want to be judgmental against anybody that has kink sex or rough sex or anything like that. I just, I don't happen to like it. And there is this it's almost like that whole generation lost the plot that a lot of young women and in fact, young people might not like casual sex because during those years, there was such a push to kind of be like, you do you, whatever's happening, you know, it's cool. And we don't judge. Um, and there was a real sexual malaise, uh, particularly around the women who felt like, not so much that the the issue was consent or sexual assault. It was a lack of connection, like people that wouldn't call you the next day, people that just disappeared, people that would treat you like who would do that? Like who would just you would have sex with somebody and then never speak to them again? You know, that's the kind of stuff that's not illegal. It's just so shitty. <laughs> Well, like, you know, I guess if your early sexual experiences or your, I don't know, first five, I don't know, 10, I don't know, are, are, that's what they are. Like, then you'd be like, what is the, like, why am I even doing this? This isn't very pleasurable. I don't, I'm not, I don't feel, I mean, maybe there's some, you know, sexual pleasure involved in it. Maybe there's not, who knows, who knows, like when you first start having sex, it's not like you really know what you're doing. So, um, but if it, if it, if that's what you're getting, I could understand why people are like, this isn't, it's like, okay, you could eat a really, really delicious hamburger and love hamburgers. But if you eat 10 shitty hamburgers, then you're not going to like hamburgers, right? You'd be like, well, I don't really like hamburgers. Um, if, you're, if your experiences are shallow and people are mean and there's no connection and you don't, I mean, sex can be epiphanic, man. Epiphanic, uh, how do you say that word? It's just, it can be like unbelievably, the universe. it's just unbelievable. But if you don't have that experience, then I can understand why younger people would not be that interested in sex. It's like, it's not, it's not, it's not fun. I'm not getting anything out of it. 
Yeah, you know, like uh, there, there's a lot of studies that show that women women have better sex in the context of relationships. And part of that is because women's sort of the orgasm response or women's desire is a little bit of a of a trickier puzzle. It usually takes a little time to understand both for both parties. And so if you're having sort of fast, quick and easy sex, that is that is going to be lower on the pleasure uh, I, I, on the pleasure meter for women. And so one of the interesting things, like like my, a lot of my first ex- sex experiences happened with my high school boyfriend and they were very positive. Um, I loved getting the chance to explore that world with someone who was very loving, very caring, and frankly, very, very grateful to be having sex. <laughs> very grateful. True. And made me feel like kind of like, you know, a yeah. queen because I had the keys to this castle right. and only I could let him in. And so if we remove the idea of women's gatekeeper role, if we remove the idea that sex, you know, it's sex doesn't have to be in the context of relationships. It doesn't. That doesn't mean it's not better when it is. I I have tons of guy friends and like just like buds, right? And like some got married young and then divorced. And so they were like kind of like in their 30s. They're out and like doing things and, you know, banging this and looking at some kind of dating app and just heading over and going. And so I've heard a million stories. And I can tell you with 100% certainty from my experience and viewpoint that Guys also enjoy sex better when there's some love and connection involved. It's not that it's, hey, it wasn't terrible like they crossed the Golden Gate Bridge and banged some girl in her apartment came up. That was fine. It was a thing, but it was not deep. It was shallow. It was like a like it was like a snack as opposed to, you know, the banquet when you're yeah. when you're in love with somebody or when you're just like completely consumed in this this womb and it's just you two and it's just un you like you you can't you're just you're swimming in in love and then it's also translating to sex it's just it's a, it's a thing that exists in the world um but i have to say most sex is not i would say most sex is is not like that no you know um even for myself you know um so but it does exist are you familiar with the phrase don't catch feelings no that has been a mantra among younger a younger generation for many years now um it was first i was first made aware of it probably about 5 years ago when i started hanging out and and frankly dating so <laughs> the younger guys oh, yeah. that i would know like, are you still doing that like People no, I haven't been. I I don't know. I think that, I think I might be done with that phase. But I had a, I had a strong two years. We should talk about it sometime because I really well, learned well, a lot. That's going to be a, a subscriber only. That's a subscriber only podcast. Is what I learned from dating twenty. What I learned from dating twenty somethings because I learned a lot and it was fascinating. Um, but this whole idea of don't catch feelings. They are so afraid. Catching feelings as is almost like the don't be a slut. Like, like it's embarrassing to catch feelings and it is the saddest thing to me because I am nothing but a feelings catcher. Like I, I'm like born to catch feelings. And so like, and I would really destabilize some of these, these younger guys because I would say like, well, of course I have feelings for you. And then they thought it meant talk about like losing code. They thought it meant that like I wanted to be in a relationship with them. I was like, no, I have, I have human feelings. 
feelings for you. I have, and they were like, God, you're just like this old person that doesn't understand how to talk. They never said old person. <laughs> they would be like, because you still had the keys to the kingdom. So I, I still did. But, uh, you know, I, I remember seeing like in a, in a, in one of these cool Austin, uh, boutiques, you know, catch Ubers, not feelings. And I just thought it was the most depressing thing in the world is this idea that you should just jet out of a sexual entanglement don't care about the other person. To me, this is, you use a phrase, you've introduced me to a phrase, anti-human. This is anti-human. So this is my Nancy voice. This is anti-human. It's important. It's important to know that this is anti-human. I don't like, don't catch feelings because, and what's so interesting about that is then you go on the internet and it's all feelings like it is his feelings but they've roped off feelings from the place where feelings make the most magic which is with another person in this thing that like I wish this is gonna sound silly maybe I don't know what it's gonna sound like I wish women young women knew it is a privilege to have sex with you it's not sacred. You, you know, you don't have to have a ring and you don't, but it is a privilege and do not give that away. I am going to give that to the young men too. Okay. I think that, I mean, it takes two people to be in, in, to, to make those feelings equal magic. Okay. And if people thought of this as, you know, it's just, and again, it's not that I don't, you want to have hookup sex, go ahead, do it, do what you want. But it, there, there's also this, uh, thing. I was going to say something about the f- feelings. I remember being, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14, you want to look cool, right? You want to look cool. You don't want to like, oh, you have a crush on Ben. You don't want to, you, re- you don't really want to let Ben know. And so like you play it super cool. I, I mean, I remember I have like, rem- like small regrets from when I was like my middle teenage years of, of trying to be so cool. And then you realize like this boy really liked you. He really liked you and you were just like, you were going to be like so cool that I wasn't going to show that I liked him too. And then you're like, you lose, you lose. I just don't remember this kid, Charlie. He just looked at me across the room and I was like being so cool. And he like looked at me with this kind of sadness. And it was true because I wasn't going to let it, I wasn't going to let it it come in. And that, that, that's really, that's a loss. And I wonder if it's just, it's like self-protection, right? You're just going to, you're, you, you don't want to possibly be hurt. So you're going to, you're going to not even allow yourself. Oh, that's called vulnerability, right? People don't want to be vulnerable. But in fact, in fact, you do want to be vulnerable because that's where all this stuff happens. This is where the good stuff happens. When you do make yourself somewhat vulnerable, are you sometimes going to get kicked in the chest? Yes, there's, there's no doubt. But you know what? You're going to, I mean, come on. It's it's so beautiful. This just giant allowing yourself to be tender and allowing someone else to be tender with you. Uh, come on, it's it's the best. One of the reasons that sex is such a fascinating area of study is that every generation tries to hack it, and every generation fails. <laughs> it, it's just an, it's, and it's amazing to watch them overcorrect and introduce new errors and you know it's just it's just unhackable and i think that is that's the the power of sex and i just it's fascinates me i find it endlessly fascinating i love this every generation tries to hack it and every generation fails oh my god it makes me think of the ice storm do you remember that movie i loved that movie oh my god i think i said this on an earlier episode but uh so the ice storm which is a really good book too by rick moody 
moody. Um, I actually used to date my friend when they were in boarding school together at St. Paul's. Bingo, name dropping. Name dropping. But uh, in any case, it was an incredible movie. And uh, there there was the whole key scene, which I will find. uh, And I called my dad after I saw it. I lived in in LA at the time. My dad was still living. Uh, And I, I called him. I said, dad, Dad, you gotta see this movie because it was all like seventies. It's the seventies, and I. He said, "Honey, I can't. I lived it." Yeah. So they, I'm they, sorry. I walked over your line. He said, I lived it. Yeah. He said, I lived it. And, and then, yeah. you know, so again, they were trying to hack sex because their generation, the way they grew up in the late fifties, early sixties, whatever, they were not allowed to do these things. My parents were Catholic, you know, and, and then they could, and it, and it, I, I have to tell you, I mean, it was just like disastrous. It, you know, I remember anyway. Um, I want to hustle through a few things because we we're we're running out of time and I want to make sure that I get to a couple of points on abortion. Um, You know, we spoke about the the overturning of Roe v. Wade last week. I want to clear up a mistake that I made, uh, which is that I mischaracterized the Texas law, the SB eight, the what we what we've called like the bounty Yes. The yes. bounty. Uh, yes. law. Now, this is something that actually affects people that aid and abet a woman seeking an abortion. This does not actually target the pregnant person. So it was a okay. little bit even more wild and outlaw than I had originally presented it. So these are this is something that that targets doctors, people who supply pills, maybe even Uber drivers, a mom taking her daughter. So that was one of the reasons why it was so insidious and people were freaking out about it. It's horrific. Um, it is absolutely horrific. Right now, uh, it's going to be in place for about 30 days until Texas actually bans abortion outright because of the standing trigger laws. So I just wanted, and, and I spoke with a friend of mine who works in reproductive health. One of the things she wanted me to know uh, was that there has been an 800% increase after Texas passed that bill for abortion in neighboring states. And that is a huge overload on resources. And so schedulers started booking people that, that want an abortion at eight weeks. They might have to wait another month. That's- and so this is actually creating the opposite of what the law wanted, which was to, to, to make abortions earlier. I'm just going to interject, interrupt for one second. I want you to go on. I went out to dinner with my friend who's visiting and her cousin uh, works at a family planning center in St. Louis. And she said, so let me tell you what this is actually going to do, this these, this overturning. It is going to in- increase by many fold late-term abortions because you've got people that can't get abortions exactly in neighboring states, people that are confused, people that are scared. And so you're going to have this, the, what the law or the overturning of Roe v. Wade ostensibly is meant to prevent or curtail or whatever is going to actually increase. It's going to increase it. You're going to have many more late-term abortions. The other thing that my friend said was that there's really there's a lot of concern with stuff like ectopic pregnancies and other conditions that affect the mother's health and pregnancy, because there are states with trigger laws that have no exception for that in their abortion laws. And so there's this concern that doctors are not going to induce an abortion until patients are basically coding because they could they worry going to jail or losing their license. And and all of this seems over the top. But this is something that doctors in these states are very concerned about. 
And this woman that I spoke to gave the example of a woman who had a miscarriage at five and a half months and the baby wouldn't pass and they had to do a D&E, uh, which is like a dilation and extraction. Um, otherwise, she, this woman would have died of sepsis. And then in some states, those D&Es are illegal. So until the woman was already septic, they couldn't do it. So there's going to be all these kind of weird and very scary side consequences. So I wonder if um, these tragedies, because there will be, and there, there will, will be, they will happen today. You will have women dying of sepsis. You will have people, uh, again, this woman, my, my friend's cousin, who's like, we are, they are now tying our hands from doing things like this, right? Or, or, and people are going to, you know, be in jeopardy of losing their license if they're, if they're going to save a woman's life. But on the other hand, the law could come after them. We are going to see many tragedies. We are, you know, there's no doubt. And that then, maybe we'll start moving the needle toward saner laws. That's right. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's very unfortunate that, that it has to happen this way, but that, that, that's what's going to happen. And I think we, we talked a little bit yesterday, you had the, uh, Pew, um, the Pew study of where people fell on like how long, you know, when did they feel comfortable when they're having to blah, 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 blah. And it was a minute, minute, minute portion of Americans that were like, no exceptions under any circumstances, rape, incest, life of the mother. No exceptions. It's, it's 8%. It's what 8%. Is it? It's 8%. 8%? 8% don't care if women are fucking coding out and bleeding on the floor dying. Because that's what, that's actually, sorry, now I'm going to get a little head up here. It's a Nancy head up moment. You, what should be done then? I'm sorry. Okay. Back in the day, most people were not alive when this happened. But when the Vietnam War was going on, for a long time, they refused to show the bodies of American service people coming back in coffins. They wouldn't do it because that was considered to be too difficult for, you know, for people to handle. Well, that obviously changed. We started seeing incredible images out of Vietnam. You know what? Take a picture of that woman bleeding out on the floor in the emergency room, okay? Because a doctor will not do because he or she has been forbidden by the law. And you send that to the people and you say, okay, you good with this? You good with this? Because I'm going to, I have 400 more I'm going to fucking send you. You good with this? Because that's what you're doing. And I got to tell you, I, because in my nice tender heart, I have a hard time believing or people are going to be like, fuck yeah, sorry. Sorry, that's okay. That's collateral shit fuck you next. I have a hard time believing that the average Joe or Jane is going to be super fucking cool with women bleeding out on the floor. Sorry. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I <clears throat> wanted to go over some of the findings in that Pew Research Center study because I think it's really interesting. Uh, I want to do this pretty quickly, uh, but yep. I'll link it in the episode notes because it's worth going over and looking at, at the, the difference in how people view abortion. Basically, it comes down to seven in 10 Americans think abortion should be legal in some cases and illegal in others. Uh, 19% think abortion should be legal in all cases with no exceptions. So basically what you see is at the far end, you've got illegal in all circumstances, 8%, and legal in all cases, full stop, 19%. Uh, but most, you know, 70% of us are in the middle. Uh, you see the highest support for abortion at six weeks. By the time you get to 14 weeks, it's about half and half. And then it's a minority supporting 24 weeks. It's about 24%. 43% con. Uh, I found it very fascinating. There's not much of a gender gap here. Uh, men are 58% uh, 
pro 63% for women. So, so not much difference there. What there is, <clears throat> is an age gap. The younger, this is not, that, that one's not, the other ones aren't surprising either. Like uh, three quarters of adults under 30 believe abortion should be generally legal. Um, and 30% think it should be legal in all circumstances under no exceptions. So the younger you are, the more you're going to be in that category of sure. no exceptions. Uh, and there's a really big partisan divide. So 80% of Democrats are for abortion and 38% of Republicans. Um, and that's, that's still pretty sizable. That's pretty sizable. sizable. But just 13% of those Republicans say abortion should be against the law in all cases without exception. So even within that, those they're against abortion, but they do want it in some circumstances. Um, Where you really see it break down is amongst religion, religious lines. Um, Three quarters of white evangelical Protestants say abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. And that's much higher than white non-evangelical Protestants, which is like 38%, and black Protestants, which is even lower at 28%. And really interesting, Catholics, who have always been the ones that are like, at least in uh, my imagination, right, uh, tied so, so much to being anti-abortion. 50, 56% say abortion should be legal. There was a big change in in Catholicism. I even remember like kind of living through it where you just had sort of like more progressive nuns and stuff saying we've got to we've got to take care of people, you know, and 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 it it's something we don't believe in, but they were not as doctrinaire as um as like the the really religious Christian right. Yeah, I remember that changing. I was alive for those for those changes. So, I I just wanted to go over that and also um tell you a a couple more things before we go on to the next subject, which is that, you know, when I was talking to my friend in reproductive health, one of the things that she told me that I didn't realize was that Planned Parenthood um, gives away IUDs, Mm -hmm. which are very expensive and very effective at preventing pregnancy. And that's donor money that goes to that. And, you know, I think, again, I would like to see, by the way, I I spoke to, I have a, I have a pro-life, I have a pro-life friend. (laughs) So do I. So do I. Liz Wolf. No, I have, I have a number, I have a number of them actually, but I have one in particular um, with whom I've had many conversations about this because she runs a group called New Wave Feminists, excuse me, which is based here in Dallas. They, they got a little ink when they were kicked out of the Women's March in 2016. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. Wait, I'm still a woman. Yeah, she's <laughs> and she's like a huge Jessica Valenti fan, and she's like really for it. Like she has a very into her name is Destiny, uh, Destiny Herndon de la Rosa, I believe is is the full name. But I always just call her Destiny because she's just Destiny. She had purple hair for a long time, so Destiny with the purple hair, and uh, you know she has this group that have a much more like she was never interested in overturning Roe v. Wade. She was interested in making abortion unthinkable, by which she meant giving women so much support, making contraception so available so that abortion available. wouldn't be something that people did. Um, and so when I spoke to her about the overturn of Roe v. Wade, she was actually really bummed because she sees it as a kind of political football that was played without putting any of the structures in place to support these women who are often very desperate. 
And this is one of the reasons I really respect Destiny is because she has what I consider to be like a like a coherent ideology. Yeah. Yeah, well, didn't we, we, I think we linked to it, our, we're going to link to it, um, I think it was David French, his late, latest piece, and he's saying, you know, now, okay, so, okay, you won, in quotes, in terms of overturning Roe v. Wade, now the real work starts, okay? Now you're not done. It's not like this mission is done. Now you, what you have to figure out, if you're not going to let women do this, and he is pro-life, You, we have to figure out ways to support women. Is it going to be in terms of adoption? Is it going to be in terms of medical and health care? Is it going to be in terms of financial support? Because you're not, you know, you're now, you know, it's now the law. You're going to have these children. How are we going to support them? In terms of birth control, I, I want to have it as easy to get as a pack of gum or maybe even as gum. You can make like birth control chewing gum, okay? Amy's, and- I mean, Amy, my God, I can't believe I just called you that. Nancy's going to fly the, the the bomber plane that just like blankets right. cities right. with, with and colleges control. and yes. high schools it with is- pills. And, and-, and like you said, your your friend, I mean, they, they give it out. They give out the IUDs for free at Planned Parenthood. My friend's cousin, they have, um, they have those, uh, those little, those little things you put in your arm that time releases the birth control. It's like a little stick. I don't know what they're called. And none of this is perfect, by the way. And some of it has interactions with your mental health and your reproductive. I, I totally get it. Well, none of it is perfect. You cannot hack sex once again. It's, it's not perfect and it's not going to be hundred percent, but you most know what? Of these- it's 99%. Okay, 99% is a lot better than 0%, okay? So 99%, and she gives them out. I, I don't know if it was for free or not, but I think so. Um, but, you know, people have to, com- they have to consent to it. They have to say, okay, I want this. But listen, here's the, here's the reality. There is birth control available out there, and I would like to make it more available. And I know we got a little, we got an interesting uh, e- email from one of our listeners where she uh, gave me some pushback in terms of my saying that I had wanted to see a birth control piece in the New York Magazine thing, talking about um, talking about how to access an abortion. And and I'm glad, I re- please, guys, if, if you want to add something or disagree with us, please send it. We, we want it. We're answering you guys. I really enjoyed her email. Um, and I said, well, my feeling about this is, you know, however many people are reading this New York Magazine article, 50,000, most of them are not at the moment pregnant and looking to terminate a pregnancy. They're looking to know what to do if they get there or their friends or their sister um, or just to know because we want to be like culturally knowledgeable about it. And if that's the case, that's called forewarned is forearmed, right? And in that case, if we're going to be forewarning is forearming, I still am going to stand by the fact that I think it would be smart to have a piece about how to get birth control because it is, it saves people time and money. I I think it's important for listeners to know that they don't need to agree with us, that we don't even want them to always agree with us. I don't always agree with myself. And I believe so strongly in in civil disagreement as a way to sort of to better understand and tease out an idea. So we encourage that in the last 10 minutes of our podcast, I need to take a hard right. But it might not be. It might be a soft right. And I want you to go back, Nancy. I want you to go back in the cultural imagination to the 1950s. Okay. It's a very repressed time. Yeah. It's it's a post-war environment. And, you know, there's not a lot of uh, talk about sex. It's very taboo. And a young man steps on the stage and he shakes his right leg 
because mm-hmm. he can't keep the force of life from moving through his body. And what was that young man's name? That young man's name was Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. Elvis Aaron Presley. Elvis Aaron Presley. It's it's a it's two A's R O N. But for a lot of his life, he thought his name only had one A. So you see it spelled differently sometimes. But um, yes, I uh, saw the number one movie in America, uh, the Baz Luhrmann biopic, just called Elvis. And I should say that I saw this movie because I saw someone on Twitter saying like, that was the worst movie I've ever seen this turn me off of movies altogether. And uh, whatever (laughs) my mind is like, well, I got to get myself to a movie theater because my, my, what I've found is that, um, there are a lot of kind of uh, outrageous, bold filmmaking that people don't like. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Paul, Mag- Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, um, which is a movie that people just absolutely despise. And I, I really like Baz Luhrmann as a general rule. I, I really loved Moulin Rouge, which was another movie that a lot of people were like, that is the worst movie I've ever seen. So <clears throat> got myself to Elvis. It's nearly three hours. It's not the best. It will not turn you off of movies, nor is it the greatest movie to come out this year. I mostly think as a general category, biopics are pretty terrible. I like the one about Johnny Cash with... um you Joaquin know, Phoenix and I'm Reese Witherspoon yeah, walked like the, line. the line. Yeah, I fell asleep during that movie, which uh, just I don't know. I, biopics are mostly boring, and this one attempts to be to kind of shake it up with. Uh, with sort of like visual razzle dazzle and also like collapsing timelines. There's a really, I thought lame framework around Colonel Tom Parker played by Tom Hanks. You could have removed him from the movie and I wouldn't have lost anything. Um, I think the main, the, the, the lead actor here, a guy named Austin Butler, this is like a star making turn. He's absolutely phenomenal. I think it would be really like, if you played that, if you play Elvis bad, that's going to make a really lousy movie. Career destroying. It's career destroying. Yeah. yeah. But he totally pulls it off. Wow. Wow. Um, and so one of the things that this movie did, I give the movie a B plus, but one of the things it did was to awaken a hunger in me to watch old documentary footage of the old Elvis before Elvis became a commodity and a kitsch and a candle and a poster at Spencer's that was there like throughout my childhood because I grew up in peak corny Elvis where, you know, my friend of mine had a recipe book called, are you hungry tonight? Oh, can I mention something about that? So uh, years ago when my daughter was like four or five, but she was with her dad for the weekend. I was like, I'm going to make myself something to eat. And I'd heard about this Elvis Presley sandwich that he loved. I guess his mom had made it for him or something. And it was a fried peanut butter and banana sandwich. I happen to love peanut butter. So I was like, this sounds great. So I made this sandwich, you know, white bread, butter, peanut butter, banana. Okay. I I got about three quarters of the way through. This thing was such a gut bomb. I mean, it was tasty, but like it was so much I'm going to find a recipe and put There's it There's a lot of reasons why why Elvis struggled with health issues in his later years, but his deep devotion to deep fried Southern uh, yeah. decadence mm-hmm. was definitely one of them. Um, so I I spent uh, uh, some of my, my more uh, low-key 
weekend watching old documentary footage of Elvis, and I found it really fascinating. I'll, I'll, I'll link to a documentary that takes place in 1956, which is the year that he kind of broke big. And I just, I love returning to this young boy that didn't know he was going to be patient zero in the American celebrity superstructure. <laughs> you know, um, he was just a kid from Tupelo. And, you know, I, I found myself very moved by a lot of the details about Elvis's life. I mean, for instance, one of them is that he lost a twin in utero. Actually, uh, that baby was stillborn. Uh, this affected him and his mother tremendously. There was a deep bond between them. I was moved by a story that she told him when he was a little boy that if he sang under a full moon, his brother could hear it. Um, a lot of Elvis's so beautiful. It's so sweet. I just have this image, you know, that the young Elvis is so distinctive with those eyes that so I, you know, Sarah told me she had been saw the film and she's there's a documentary, I think it's on HBO. So I watched um there's a couple of episodes. I watched the first like two thirds of the first one. And there is so of course we all grew up with Elvis. He was this iconic poster everywhere. You know, I I was alive when he died, so I was alive when he was around for a while. But um he was so crazily beautiful in a way that is um is is almost like supernaturally beautiful. Um, but also what it is, is because that sort of whatever's inside of him is sort of like yeah. pushing it out. And, um, and then when you watch him, I was so taken with the fact, first of all, the guy can sing, the guy can sing, but it's not just singing. It's, it's like what's imbuing the singing and it's mm-hmm. what's like coming out of him. And I noticed in the, 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 the documentary that I was watching, we'll have links of course in the show notes to this. It was the night, it was 1968. Elvis hadn't been around for a while. He still was looking amazing. He's like in this black. He'd jumpsuit. been sort of lost in Hollywood movies. He'd been doing all these really corny yeah. Hollywood movies for years. Yeah. Hawaii, whatever, blue Hawaii or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, he, he gets up on this stage and he is there. He should you if in charisma that there should be his picture in in the dictionary because it's it's just so unbelievably undeniable and it's not because of like camera angles or editing or something it's just he is just pushing it out and also they show him like singing some of his songs which, which were the first songs that he ever sang yes every time it literally looks like the first time he is singing this song he is so absolutely in the slipstream of what it can be to be inside this song and then giving it away to you. And as you said yesterday, what's happening to the people that are watching this? What is happening? It's go Sarah have blood. Well, hypnotized. I mean, first of all, yeah, the 68 comeback special is, is worth watching, um, in totality, or at least you can watch clips on YouTube. Uh, there is a performance of that's all right, mama, that just absolutely tickles me. I mean, it just, the thing explodes and you've never seen someone (laughs) dance so much while sitting down. And one of the things I find so endearing about Elvis is that he cannot stop moving. And, you know, he just has to dance. He would do this even in the studio. They would say, like, can you please stop? No, no, I can't. (laughs) I have to keep going. And, you know, I grew up with this sort of a little bit of a like I just had this sense of like this guy. This guy is such a like overrated star. He doesn't even write his own music. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that really struck me in watching all these clips was the extent to which, okay, he might not be writing them, but he is interpreting them. 
-hmm. He is giving them life and new life in ways that they hadn't had before. He is synthesizing all these fascinating vectors of bluegrass and gospel um, and R&B in a way that is going to become rock music. I mean, it's the biggest cliche. And because of that, you almost miss what a freaking insane thing important thing it is. But what I love watching is the effect on these women in the crowd in 1956. It's almost like they are at like some sort of church where they're speaking in tongues, like a revivalist. It does. It looks like that. It has a religious fervor. Watching those videos made me wonder why women are not, young women are not given more um, credit for pushing rock and roll into the mainstream because it was because of those crowds that it became such a phenomenon. Oh, well, they absolutely are. I mean, that was the, the, the their response, this, the actual like physical, mental, spiritual, psychic response to him absolutely was the gas in the tank. I mean, there's, there's no there's no doubt about that. And I think what you're you're kind of saying, you know, you grow up and it was kind of like kitschy, even for me, because he was like, you know, it was some older guy, whatever. There's a reason why. Now, we've, of course, it's been perverted and weird things have happened and made weird commodification out of it. But peoples who have not actually like experienced Elvis Presley, there's a reason why he became what he was in terms of why he's still around. It's, it's not the same thing. But go look at the original because it's, it's really almost overwhelming uh, in, in the most in the most filling way. And I'm really, really super glad that you told me to watch this. I will go back and watch more of it because it's just, it's stunning. And it's so nice that in like, you know, we started this podcast talking about how like we've got like all this native music that was coming out in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. like coming back around to like soul satisfy us. And now to kind of end this, like Elvis can do this too. And I can't, I imagine he'd, he'd dig it, be like, all right, ladies, you know, just, just get on it, you know? So, um, we'll have all kinds of links, um, in the show notes for you guys. All right, baby. Okay. Uh, I have a, I have a little request for our uh, listeners. You know, we're always asking, you know, to to subscribe and please sign up for a paid subscription. If you would like to, we'd love to. Um, my little challenge to you guys this week is like, send this uh, episode to a few of your friends because we would love more people to know about it. We're just a little over two months old. We'd love doing this for you. It seems to be going pretty well. And I'd like to get uh, more people here and, um, send us your emails and sign up and, um, bye Sarah Hepla. Bye Nancy Rommelman. Don't let a good thing die When honey, you know I have never lied to you